Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number two, the book of Acts, chapter one. Well, in our introduction to the book of Acts last week, one of the several reasons that I highlighted for deciding to teach this New Testament book, besides the fact that the Holy Spirit led me to do so, was because it forms the foundational context for understanding who Paul is. And while much more goes into Acts than only concerns Paul, and we're going to spend a great deal of our study on those things, there is no greater influence on the modern institutional Christian church than Paul's epistles. So I can't help but focus on Paul, especially once he enters the scene in the book of Acts. Now Paul was perceived as problematic within the Messianic movement as early as maybe 48-49 AD by the Apostle Peter claiming that Paul could be quite hard to understand without doubt this is the same issue that led to James summoning Paul to Jerusalem for a meeting in 49 AD because of the things he'd heard about Paul I mean, so what did Peter mean in 2 Peter 3.16 when he said Paul was hard to understand? I mean, did Paul mumble? Was he a poor Hebrew and Aramaic speaker? Did he he speak in circles? Unsolvable riddles? Obviously that's not Peter's issue with Paul. As Paul was always depicted throughout the New Testament as a elite intellectual articulate a walking encyclopedia Judaica he was a persuasive orator even in the front even in front of the heads of state so what was so hard to understand about Paul's words Well, since Peter was an original disciple of Yeshua, who was there with him as a constant companion from the beginning of Yeshua's ministry, on through the time of his crucifixion, his resurrection, he had personally witnessed Messiah's ascension up into the clouds. Peter had been trained at the feet of the Master. Can you imagine? But when he heard some of the things that the relative newcomer, Paul, said about the various subjects regarding the meaning and the consequences of Yeshua's advent as Savior and what Jewish and Gentile followers ought to do as a result, at times they must not have sounded too much like the instructions that Peter had heard directly from the lips of Christ. I mean, I can tell you frankly, I have similar issues. There are things that Paul says in his many letters that are at times hard to square with what Christ says in the Gospels. They are. 
quite recently I had a, a very lively dinner conversation with a longtime dear friend who's one of the most respected, prolific, and widely read Christian fiction writers of our time. Now, I don't need to reveal his name. He's doing well enough. I don't have to give him free advertising. And as I discussed with him some of the things I'm going to discuss with you, he paused and he said that, and I paraphrase this, as much as, ta- as Paul taught him and has been a spiritual guide to him, he's not sure how much he likes Paul on a personal and a gut level. That Paul could be infuriating, arrogant, sometimes contradictive if not sounding outright double-minded on some important theological matters that concern every believer, Gentile or Jew. And if you don't feel some of that, he said, you haven't read Paul. Now, I'm not sure I could be quite as disapproving as my friend, but I have had similar reactions as I've studied Paul's epistles. So do I think there's a problem? Yes, I do. But the problem's not with Paul. The problem's with us. Unless and until we and Christianity in totality take Paul in his Jewish cultural and religious context and understand that all of his words naturally, reflexively flow from who he is in his Jewish context both before and after he met the resurrected Christ resurrected Christ then we're going to misunderstand his words and their intent his 13 epistles some say 14 if you assume he wrote the book of Hebrews which most scholars say he didn't and I'm in agreement with them that he did not Paul's letters do not explain who Paul is they do not delve deeply into his cultural and religious background. Rather, they explain what Paul did, what Paul said to a wide variety of people in a wide variety of circumstances and cultural settings after his confrontation with the risen Messiah and his conversion on the road to Damascus. So where do we find out who Paul really is. Where do we find out how we are to understand the very structure of Paul's sentences and the terms he chooses obviously that reflects his Jewish cultural background and he has a dedication to and how do we see all this within the understanding of his Jewish religion? We find it in the book of Acts. Now as the Gentile church formed and it progressed in the years following the death of Christ and then this eventual demise of all the apostles, we find a tug of war developing. A tug of war between church leadership to determine how much Jewishness should be allowed into Gentile Christianity and how much the church doctrines ought to be influenced by the Jewish context 
of the Holy Scriptures, not to mention the Jewishness of nearly all of its characters and writers. And as an aside, let me be clear that while the best technically correct term that I ought to use is Hebrew rather than Jewish, I'm going to use Jewish more often because it's the more commonly used term in our day, even if from a scholarly standpoint, Hebrew is a bit more nuanced. The issue of Paul's Jewishness is why we talked about Marcion last week, who about 40 years or so after the last of the original apostles died, decided that no Jewishness, none, not a drop, should be allowed into Christianity. And to try and assure that it didn't, he fought back against using the book of Acts. Marcion wanted to try and assure that no Jewishness went into the book of Acts. Or rather went into his model of, of Gentile Christianity. So he fought against using the book of Acts as instructional or historical material for Christians. And he only wanted to use nine of Paul's 13 letters and even then only the versions that Marcion heavily, uh, heavily edited. He wasn't entirely alone, entirely alone in his viewpoint, and his arguments obviously had their long-term effect. One of the things that I do to prepare my lessons is to research several of the scholarly commentaries that Jewish and Christian sources generally agree are the best. Clearly, rising above the many other good ones. And as I studied these various commentaries on Acts, and as I noted the many reference sources used by these excellent commentators, I found it strange that almost no mention was made of the comments written by the earliest church fathers. It's fascinating. Being a natural-born skeptic, I wondered why that was. And finding just what these early church fathers had to say was quite a challenge for me because so much of what they had to say were in languages such as Latin that I was unfamiliar with but thanks be to God by chance I stumbled across a little known work accomplished by Francis Martin who not only translated but also collated and correlated what many of the early church fathers had to say about Luke's book of Acts. And it has greatly added to and colored what I now understand about this pivotal New Testament book as it filled in some critical blanks. Now before we read Acts chapter 1 together, I want to give you a quote from John Chrysostom who wrote a rather complete commentary on the book of Acts around 400 A.D. And what he says in only a couple of sentences gives us great insight into the mindset of the the church and of Christianity in general towards 
this book, the book of Acts, in his day and in the decades that were leading up to his commentary. Chrysostom says this about the book of Acts, and I quote him. To many people, this book, the book of Acts, both its content and its author, is so little known they're not even aware it exists. I have therefore taken this narrative for my subject, both to initiate those who are ignorant, and so that such a treasure shall not remain hidden out of sight. Isn't that interesting? Why was this Bible book so little known in Christianity that one of its greatest leaders, Chrysostom, could say that even its authorship wasn't known, let alone what it contained? I mean, after all, the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts were written by the same author. And the Gospel of Luke was a mainstay for the Christian community long before it and other books were canonized as God-inspired and then made part of a Christian Bible that include the so-called New Testament. As I told you last week, Luke originally created a single unified work called History of Christian Origins, which consisted of two volumes, the Gospel and the Apostles. Eventually, these two volumes were part A, and I mean, essentially, these two volumes were parts A and B of a total work developed by Luke. But even before Marcion's time, the 140s AD, Luke's work had been divided and separated into two individual books, and they circulated separately. The Gospel of Luke was one book. The Acts of the Apostles was the second book. And once they became separated, the continuity and connection of Luke's exquisite work was lost. Each book presented only half the story. And many in the Gentile-dominated church revered the first half, didn't care so much for the second half because as Marcion was bold enough to at least say it out loud, it was just too Jewish. The book of Acts especially presented a much too Jewish Paul who had been remolded by many church bishops into an apostle to the Gentiles who was very nearly a Gentile himself. His Jewishness being an unimportant, if not troublesome, formality that need not be considered or even brought up. That is why John Chrysostom could say that few within the church knew that the book of Acts even existed. Can you imagine? Now take note of this as well. Since it has long been known that the book of Acts is the direct sequel to the Gospel of Luke. Follow me in this. Why doesn't Acts directly follow the Gospel of Luke in our Bible? Then, if it did, we'd have that original continuity and flow that Luke intended. 
Why did the early church decide to put the Gospels in the order of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and then insert a fourth Gospel, John, before then inserting Acts? Why not Matthew, Mark, John, and then Luke, immediately followed by Acts? Why not? I mean, after all, that's exactly how it's done with Paul and Peter and others when there are two parts to one letter or one complete work. For example, 1 Corinthians isn't separated from 2 Corinthians with other books placed in between. You think that was accidental? They just flipped a coin? That the church fathers didn't realize what they were doing by separating Luke from Acts? Might there have been an agenda at work here? Of course there was. And the result was exactly what John Chrysostom revealed at the beginning of the 5th century AD. Few Christians even knew that the book of Acts existed. Or that its author was the Luke of the Gospels. Or that Acts was simply Luke part 2. That's why it was hidden out of sight. Without the book of Acts, Paul could more easily be recast as a Gentilish Jew who spoke against the Torah and against the Jewish people and he made Gentile believers the new and replaced Israel. Open your Bibles to Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1. If you have a complete Jewish Bible, you're on page 1360. Luke chapter 1. Luke. Acts chapter 1, written by Luke. Dear Theophilus, in the first book, I wrote about everything Yeshua set out to do and teach until the day when, after giving instructions through the Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit, to the emissaries whom he had chosen, he was taken up into heaven. And after his death, he showed himself to them and he gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. And during a period of 40 days, they saw him. He spoke with them about the kingdom of God. At one of these gatherings, he instructed them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father promised, which you heard about from me. For Yochanan, John, used to immerse people in water, but in a few days you will be immersed in the Holy Spirit. And when they were together, they asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore self-rule to Israel? And he answered, you don't need to know the date. You don't need to know the times. The fathers kept these things under his own authority, but you will receive power when the Ruach HaKodesh comes upon you. You will be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judah and Shomron, Samaria, indeed to the ends of the earth. And after saying this, he was taken up before their eyes and a cloud hid him from their sight. And as they were staring into the sky after him, suddenly they saw two men dressed in white standing next to them. And the men said, you Galileans, why are you standing staring into space? This Yeshua who has been taken away from you into heaven will come back to you in just the same way as you saw him go into heaven. 
Then they returned the Shabbat walk distance from the Mount of Olives to Jerusalem. And after entering the city, they went to the upstairs room where they were staying. The names of the emissaries were Kepha, Yaakov, Yochanan, Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Bartalmai, Matiao, Yaakov ben Halfai, Shimon the Zealot, and Yehuda ben Yaakov. These all devoted themselves single-mindedly to prayer, along with some women, including Miriam, Yeshua's mother, and his brothers. And during this period, when the group of believers numbered about 120, Kepha, that's Peter, stood up and addressed his fellow believers. Brothers, the Holy Spirit spoke in advance through David about Judah, means Judas in this case, and these words of the Tanakh, the Old Testament, had to be fulfilled. He was guide for those who arrested Yeshua. He was one of us. He'd been assigned a part in our work. With the money... Judas received for his evil deed, he bought a field, and there he fell to his death. His body swelled up and burst open. All his insides uh, spilled out. And this became uh, known to everyone in uh, Jerusalem, so that they called the field Hakaldemah, which in their language means field of blood. Now, said Kepha, it is written in the book of Psalms, let his estate become desolate, let there be no one to live in it, and let someone else take his place as a supervisor. Therefore, one of the men who have been among us continuously throughout the time the Lord Yeshua traveled around among us from the time Yochanan was immersing people until the day Yeshua was taken up from us, one of these must become a witness with us to his resurrection. And they nominated two men, Yosef bar Sabah, surnamed Justice, and Matthiel. And then they prayed, Lord, you know everyone's heart. Show us which of these two you have chosen to take over the work and the office of emissary that Judas abandoned to go where he belongs. And then they drew lots to decide between the two and the lot fell to Matthiel. So he was added to the eleven emissaries. We have so many interesting and foundational topics one after the other in the first chapter we're going to deal with several of them now we've already covered authorship so we could easily call the book the, the book of Acts Luke part 2 and like the first book the gospel of Luke this one is dedicated to the same fellow Theophilus now Theophilus is a Greek word that means friend of God There are not just a few scholars who therefore say that in fact, while this is a real name that was in use at that time, that's verified, that it could also just as easily be a general term referring to all of the new believers in Christ as friends of God. Now we're not going to get into the many debates about this because... Most of them, in my opinion, are specious arguments that ignore the plain wording that's before us. Absolute proof, of course, is not possible. But there is no reason to think that Theophilos wasn't a rich benefactor who paid Luke to do his thorough research investigation into Yeshua and that all that he did and then what happened to the early movement of believers after his ascension was to be included. 
So right away in verse 2, we see Luke's focus on the work of God through the Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit. And we're going to find the use of this term, Holy Spirit, 39 more times in Acts. This means that of all the uses, all the uses of the term Holy Spirit in the entire New Testament, the book of Acts alone contains almost half of them. In fact, the second verse explains that Yeshua gave instructions through the auspices of the Holy Spirit to the twelve disciples he had originally chosen. Eleven, really, because Judas had committed suicide. Thus, Luke makes a strong connection, not just with Yehovah and the Holy Spirit, but now with Jesus and the Holy Spirit. So we see this great unity this oneness, this echad of God expressed and understood by Luke. Luke reminds his readers in verse 3 that after Yeshua arose from that rocky tomb that he presented himself to many of his followers and he left no doubt that it was he and that he was real and alive, he was not an apparition, and he wasn't a ghost. We find record of this fact in numerous places in the New Testament. Here's one example. In Matthew 28, 8-10, we read this. So they left the tomb quickly, frightened, yet filled with joy, and they ran to give the news to his Talmudim, his disciples. And suddenly Yeshua met them and said, Shalom. And they came up and took hold of his feet and they fell down in front of him. And Yeshua said to them, Don't be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to the Galilee. They'll see me there. Then we skip down a few verses to verse 16 in Matthew 28. So the eleven... Talmudim, the disciples, went to the hill in the Galilee where Yeshua had told them to go. And when they saw him, they prostrated themselves before him, but some hesitated. Yeshua came over and talked with them and he said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore go and make people from all nations into disciples, immersing them into the reality of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit teaching them to obey everything that I've commanded you. And remember, I will be with you always. Yes, even until the end of the age. Then we get a piece of information in verse 3 of chapter 1 of the book of Acts that we didn't get in the Gospels. After his resurrection, Yeshua stayed around for a period of 40 days communing with and instructing his disciples. Why 40 days? God instructed Moses on the top of Mount Sinai for 40 days. And now God, Yeshua, is instructing his disciples for 40 days. 40 is the biblical number that symbolizes testing or or transition. 
And since we know that the Holy Spirit would arrive to dwell within humans on the 50th day after Passover, and we know that Yeshua arose on first fruits, Bikrim, and he remained on earth for 40 days, then depending on how one decides to count the days, from Passover to first fruits, I say it's three days, that it seems probable that one week to the day after Christ ascended into heaven, Shavuot arrived and with it the Holy Spirit. One week is seven days. And seven is the ideal number. And it is symbolic of wholeness or divine completion. It makes sense that it would be exactly seven days between Christ ascending and the Holy Spirit arriving. And it follows the biblical pattern that we saw in the Torah and in the Old Testament. Now we get one other important piece of information. What was it that Christ spent his time on mainly teaching his disciples about? It says it was about the kingdom of God. And by the way, at times we're going to see places in the New Testament that speaks of the kingdom of heaven. It is synonymous with the kingdom of God. And yet, as we'll see in a couple more verses, there were aspects about the concept of the kingdom of God that the disciples still didn't comprehend. It was during that 40-day period at one of these post-resurrection gatherings that Yeshua instructed the eleven that they were not to leave Jerusalem. Instead, they were to wait for what the Father promised. So obviously, at this particular gathering, when he gave that instruction, they weren't in Galilee. Rather, Jesus met with them in Jerusalem. Then in verse 4, Christ says something quite interesting that has much more depth to it than meets the eye. He says that although his cousin, Yochanan, John the Baptist, baptized people in water, the disciples would be baptized in the Holy Spirit. Now notice that with John, the baptizer was a human being. John. But Yeshua didn't say that the disciples would go out and baptize in the Holy Spirit instead of water, but rather that they would be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Now one can only imagine what this might have meant to them. I suspect it was pretty puzzling. So this is where we'll pause and talk about this, because since these eleven disciples were all Jews... And since their cultural and religious context is Second Temple Judaism, any talk among themselves about baptizing was within the framework, of course, of how Jews baptized. What did it mean to them? First, the English word baptized comes from the Greek verb baptizim. Right, and it is a general term that means to immerse. So whatever it's meant to symbolize, the action physically involves immersion of something, usually into a liquid. And the purpose of being immersed is to take on the qualities of that liquid 
that that person or object's being immersed into. The term was regularly used, common everyday term, regularly used as regards the dyeing of cloth. So, a plain cloth is immersed into a vat of dye, and what does it do? It takes on the qualities of that dye, which is to change the cloth to a certain color. Now, from the Jewish Second Temple period perspective, whereby Judaism had become an amalgam of traditions that overlapped and intermingled with Torah commandments regarding the God-ordained act of immersion, the purpose of immersion was generally to become ritually purified or cleansed. There were many ways that ritual purity could be lost. But immersion invariably was the way to regain that lost purity. In fact, immersion to regain ritual purity was not only for humans. It was also for inanimate objects like cookware. The preferred place for immersion of a human was a mikveh. This is a ritual bath you see in this picture that had steps down into a water reservoir and then usually steps that were separated back up. The water reservoir had to be deep enough that the entire body, head to toe, could be enveloped in water. But when a mikveh was not available, a river or a spring-fed lake was acceptable. Now I spoke about immersion as a change in status. When someone or something, you see, is not ritually pure, it's not usable for God. When someone or something is ritually clean, it becomes usable for God. So it was common for a person or an object to be ritually clean, then somehow made ritually unclean, only to be made ritually clean again through immersion. Now to be clear, the water used for immersion is itself only symbolic. It has no magical qualities to it. Rather, by going into the water and immersing, baptizing, if you would, it signals that you or some object is willfully changing your status from one condition into another. From being someone who God is not able to use because you aren't pure enough in God's eyes to someone God is able to use because now you are pure enough in God's eyes. As regards believers' baptism, it is symbolic of laying down our own will and submitting to God's. It is death and burial of our identity and our allegiance to self, and thus having our status changed, such that our new identity and allegiance is Messiah. So whereas John, a physical human being, could only immerse people into physical water as a show of symbolism, now through Christ, and without the aid of a human, 
God would immerse a person into His Holy Spirit and it was not symbolic. It was real. And what did one obtain with immersion into the Holy Spirit? Power. Power. Finally, praise the Lord, finally the power to hear God and to obey Him. To do His will even in impossible circumstances. Power to go forth with the good news, to deliver it to others. And with Christ's disciples at least, the power to do miracles like their Master had. To stay on course. Let's talk about Yeshua and the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit descended upon Christ. He was the first to receive the Spirit that dwelled within. And yet, since Yeshua was God, the Holy Spirit was as much a part of Him as for His Father. There is only one Holy Spirit. There's not many. Thus essentially the same Spirit that was in within Yeshua, He would share with His eleven disciples and also with all who came to faith in Him. I think a good way to look at it is that indeed Yeshua shares His Holy Spirit. He shares it with His disciples as the means to empower them to do what He did and to do what He wants them, He wants us to do. So, what happened with Yeshua and then the disciples was a first, right? No, it was not. God is a God of patterns. And all that we see happening in the New Testament, it was first patterned in the Old Testament. Listen to Numbers 11, verses 24 to 26. Moshe went out and he told the people what Adonai had said. Then he collected 70 of the leaders of the people and he placed them all around the tent. And Adonai came down in a cloud... And he spoke to him and he took some of the spirit that was on him and he put it on the 70 leaders. And when the spirit came to rest on them, they prophesied. Then but not afterwards. Now there were two men who stayed in the camp. One named Eldad and the other Medad and the spirit came to rest on them. They were among those listed to go out to the tent but they hadn't done so. So they prophesied in the camp. How about that? The pattern and the precedent had already been set with the first mediator, Moses, whereby God's Spirit that rested upon him became shared with his disciples, the 70 elders. And what did they do as a result of that? They prophesied. Meaning, they spoke as God directed them. Two others that had stayed in the tent encampment also had the Spirit rest upon them and they prophesied in the camp. But it was all short-lived. Now we see 
what we've talked about time and time again. Yeshua, the second and better mediator, came to bring the Torah and the prophets to a whole new and higher level of fulfillment. With Yeshua as mediator, the Holy Spirit didn't just rest upon worshipers, He indwelled us. And the effect of that was not short-lived. It's lifelong. When you and I and everyone who has trusted in Christ were anointed with that Holy Spirit, it was meant to be for a lifetime. We don't have to occasionally redo it. Now we're going to move on to verse 6 now and into another awesome topic. But I don't want to leave the matter of baptism before telling you this. Yes, it was symbolic. But it is also commanded by Yeshua. So that makes it vitally necessary. Vitally. It's not optional. You don't get to decide. Not as a follower. And one of the purposes of baptism is to make a public profession to fellow believers that you have decided to humble yourself, to put down your crown, to take up His cross, and to join the community of believers. Will submerging underwater change you? No. Water can't enter into your innermost parts, but the Holy Spirit can, and He will. By being obedient to God to follow Messiah's command to immerse and by being willing to let others around you know of your change of status, you'll be changed. Since coming to Messiah, have you been immersed? Have you perhaps left a faith or a denomination that was well off the mark and you want to now immerse into the truth of Yeshua and the truth of the entire Word of God, not merely into the image or fantasy but of whatever you used to think Him to be. Do you want to boldly tell the Father and your family and your congregation that you now know through faith in Messiah you have been grafted into the covenants of Israel? The covenants that provide for a Jewish Savior to pay the price for your sins. Do you want to declare that the Lord has made you prepared, full of power? You are now finally usable by God. Then be immersed. And I'll be happy to talk to anyone who wants to know more about it at the end of this message. Well, in verse 6, we see that the disciples still didn't get this kingdom of God thing. They just didn't. Not even with God Himself, Jesus, personally teaching them about it. One more reason the coming of the Holy Spirit that we see in chapter 2 is so necessary. So the disciples ask Yeshua this question, Lord... Are you going to at this time restore self-rule to Israel? You see, all of Judaism was breathlessly waiting for their deliverer, 
an anointed one to come and not only to rescue Israel from the hands of the Romans but also to restore their self-rule. That self-rule was to come in the form of a Davidic king. And the disciples well understood that Yeshua came from one of the royal lines of David so he was qualified for that position. And by the way, there were many lines that came from David through his many wives but there was just a single line that came through David's son Solomon and that was considered to be the ultimate royal line meaning eligibility to sit on the throne of Israel as king. So even through all that Yeshua had done and taught them personally, the eleven still seemed to harbor this notion that in his now resurrected body, he was going to lead Israel in a successful military rebellion against Rome. This particular expectation of a Messiah was present in virtually all Jews whether they lived in the Holy Land or out in the Diaspora. And since Christ had proven in every way He was the Messiah, what would have been a more logical question that one of the disciples put forward to Him than about Israel and self-rule? The disciples didn't get it. That, at least for this time, Yeshua came only to die as a ransom for sin. Yeshua's answer to their question is fascinating. And it's important. He didn't say no. He essentially said, later. In Acts 1, 7-8, He answered, You don't need to know the date or the time. The Father's kept these under His own authority. But you will receive power. When the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you will be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in Judah and Samaria, indeed to the ends of the earth. So Christ's answer to the question, will Israel return to self-rule? Is yes, Israel will. And by the way, they had that self-rule restored to them in May of 1948. And they've been under self-rule ever since. However, that still is not the fulfillment of what Yeshua was speaking about. Because Yeshua's concern wasn't merely the land of Israel having independence and being led by a Jew, but rather that Israel would become the the core of the kingdom of God. And that event is still in the future, and it is what modern Christianity calls the millennial kingdom. So, While it's going to come as a surprise to many believers, it shouldn't surprise you to know that Israel and the kingdom of God will one day be the same. And Jerusalem as capital of Israel will also be capital of the worldwide kingdom of God with Jesus Christ ruling on earth as king over us all. But Yeshua told them they didn't need to know when this was going to happen. In fact, the Father's the only one who knows and He's keeping it to Himself. So instead of receiving knowledge of when these events will happen, events they can't even fathom, they will, in a matter of days, receive power 
when the Holy Spirit comes upon them. His answer also completely blows away this Christian concept of replacement theology or that the Jews no longer have a right to the Holy Land and instead it all now belongs to the Gentile church. Another important thing that happened here is most instructional for our day and it plays into a pet peeve of mine. I have more than one. Jesus refocused them. He refocused them from anxiously staring off into the future and instead told them, concentrate on the now. Whatever lies ahead in prophecy is important and you know what? We can count on it. But we should not live our lives in waiting mode. Or as with today among too many believers constantly thinking about the end times while the days just whiz by. And mostly we just fret and worry about the terrible things we read about happening in the end times instead of being productive. Folks, there are nearly daily a bevy of false prophets who send out internet newsletters, they write books. They try to tell you to watch out for this month or this blood moon because the Holy Spirit told them the destruction of the USA was coming. Or the Antichrist would appear. Or the world would enter into war. Or we'll have a complete financial collapse or fill in the blank with whatever catastrophes currently in vogue. They sound so convincing. But when that month or that day that occurrence passes and nothing particularly important happens, they just move right on to their next false prophecy. Why listen to them? Does it make you feel more religious? Or does it just play into your fears? So you're happy you're not alone in those fears. How does it help the kingdom of God or yourself or your family to be full of fear and trembling about a future no one can possibly know? Because Yeshua himself said you couldn't. Do you know why these false prophets continue to do this? Because they continue to get an audience. Christ says that he has told us what we need to know about the outcome of God's plan of redemption. But the when is not for us to know. Rather, as His devoted followers, we are to get on with the business of doing God's will, living holy lives, caring for Yeshua's sheep, and doing whatever we can to bring the lost ones into the kingdom. Yeshua telling the disciples to be witnesses for Him in Jerusalem and then Samaria and to the ends of the earth tells us a couple of important things. First, it tells us that Jerusalem of Judea is the beginning point. It is like the epicenter of a massive earthquake. And the gospel is to then ripple outwards from there. 
it is to spread next to Samaria, a place the Jews, including the believers, simply despised. Even though most Samarians had some Hebrew blood in their veins. And then after Samaria, to every corner of the earth, meaning to the Gentile world, but no doubt to the Jewish diaspora as well. In fact, I have no doubt, none, that since to this point Yeshua was 100% about being the Jewish Messiah who came for the Jewish people that when the disciples heard this instruction from Jesus, their first thought was for who? The Gentiles? No. It was for their Jewish brothers of the diaspora representing more than 90% of all living Jews. They all lived in these far-flung cities and towns throughout North Africa, Asia, Europe. Little did they understand just yet that Gentiles would become an important part of their work. And that's why we're going to see so much focus on Paul, who is the designated apostle to the Gentiles in just a few more chapters. But telling his disciples to be a witness for him was said and understood within the common Jewish legal understanding of that term of witness. A witness, you see, was part of the legal system's process of justice. A witness carried more, uh, was far more the casual observer to an event. Rather, a witness was important and they carried real power. And they knew things. A witness in the Jewish legal system was often the accuser. A witness was believed in their testimony because if they weren't truthful, they could be prosecuted. Two witnesses whose testimony matched was typically sufficient for conviction. And if the conviction was for a capital offense, those same witnesses led the execution process. Do you want to be a witness for Christ? Then understand the seriousness of your office and that only the indwelling of the Holy Spirit can give you the necessary authority and the necessary power to even function in that position. We'll continue in Acts chapter 1 next week.